Good morning again, Coastal Church. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 will serve as our launching point this morning. We are in week two of our Exodus series, working through the second half of the book of Exodus. And I'm excited about our time in the Word this morning. But before we dive in, I wanted to share something um, by way of, of kind of a personal thank you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I shared that this church has been like a family to mine. I'm going to give you an example of one of the ways that's been the case. Uh, many of you know my daughter, Piper. She, five years old uh, in November, fell off the playground at Kidsburg. Anyone been to Kidsburg on Monticello? Yeah, it's one of those playgrounds where if you're a parent, it's really hard to watch multiple kids at a time. So I just sit at a bench in one spot and hope they come back. <laughs> um, they usually do. Uh, but Piper was at Kidsburg and fell off the zipline, broke her arm in November and it was quite the 48 hours for the Curtis family. We ended up going to CHKD in Norfolk and surgery and pins in her arm and two and a half months of a bright pink neon cast. Um, so it was an adventure. I mean, she had the cast over Christmas um, and Piper loves to color. And so her coloring was inhibited. She's a right-handed person. She had to color with her left hand, uh, but the cast has now been off for a couple weeks. And here's why I say, thank you. You guys were so sweet to her. Every Sunday she would come in this building and people would ask her about how her arm was doing. People would offer to sign her cast. She looked forward to Sundays because she knew her church loved her. Uh, but now the cast is off. We're grateful for that. And she's back to coloring with her right hand. She hasn't quite gotten to the level of, of excellent coloring that we, the standard that we hold her to. Uh, but she did color at my request this week, a picture of our house and our family. And I asked her if I could share it with you guys. Uh, I think we have a slide for it. If you could just got to get guys get a chance. Go ahead and put that up there. Okay, so that's what Piper did for you this week. Um, and I actually have the original right here. I want to explain it, and I promise there's a point to this, but I want to explain it. Um, so Piper, by request, did a picture of our house and our family. Um, let me translate. I can read what's written at the top. It says, family, yay, Piper. Um, and then here's the five of us at the bottom. So myself, my wife, Amy, and then we have three young kids uh, who are all different ages, but all the same size, apparently, in this picture. <laughs> and, and I'll just let you in on a little secret. Our house is not green, and it doesn't look like a Christmas tree. Um, but this is what it looks like to her. She drew this picture because we have green shutters on our windows and because she loves her family, and she wanted to draw it. Now listen, this is a picture it's not what our house actually looks like. It's a representation of what our house looks like. It is a, a symbol, a picture, a foreshadowing of a, a greater reality. Now, why start like that this morning? Our time in the Word today, we're going to see the same idea. In God's Word, we're going to look at four chapters, Exodus 25 through 29, chapters of detail, of nuance, of specifics, of God giving instructions to the nation of Israel on how to build the tabernacle, with the place where he would be worshipped, the earthly place where God would dwell with his people. These chapters cover details of the tabernacle worship process, how they were to create the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood, even how they were to ordain the priesthood. But here's what I want us to see. These details that we're going to look at this morning are a, a symbol, a representation pointing us to a greater reality. We're going to see that all over our time in the Word this morning. And I'm really excited. Let me tell you why. Exodus 25 
is where Bible reading plans go to die. Not a joke. Like, if you've been a Christian for any number of years, if you tried to read the Bible before, you know this. You start in Genesis 1, and it's awesome. Boom, God creates the universe out of nothing. And then in Genesis, we see incredible story after incredible story of how God chooses a people to make his name great. And these people end up in Egypt as the book of Genesis ends. And then we see the book of Exodus. And Pastor Hunter did a great job last week of recapping the first half of Exodus. We see the plagues and God parting the Red Sea, God delivering his people out of Egypt. And then they're at Mount Sinai and thunders all around. And God's giving the covenant to his people, the Ten Commandments to his people. It's this awesome scene and then all of a sudden we get chapter 25 and we hit six chapters of details details about building the tabernacle the ark of the covenant the ordination of the priests and so for average christians this is where reading our bibles if we're honest can start to feel like walking through mud because we think what in the world do these details have to do with my life i mean we don't worship god at a tabernacle we don't sacrifice animals we don't make bronze altars and we don't know where the ark of the covenant is unless your name is indiana jones that, okay that was a joke so here's a question church here's what we're dealing with this morning how did the details in Exodus, in this passage in Exodus, why do they matter? How do they impact our lives? And what do they have to do with us as 21st century followers of Jesus living in Williamsburg, Virginia? The answer to that question is why I'm excited about this text. These details, every single one of them are all pointing to one consistent truth. Our God desires to dwell with his people. That's our takeaway. Our God desires to dwell with his people. And every one of these chapters, every detail found in them is pointing us to that desire. So let's read the first few verses of chapter 25 and we'll see this emerge pretty quickly. This is the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting and the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them make for me a sanctuary. Now underline this next part in verse eight that I may, what church? Dwell. That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So the Israelites with their covenant renewed are now tasked with building God a sanctuary. That's how this chapter opens. And they're taking up offerings, tithes and offerings with all sorts of different items to build a sanctuary so that God might dwell in their midst. Now, Hold your place in chapter 25 and turn over with me to the end of our passage today in chapter 29. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there because I really want you to see this. Chapter 29, starting in verse 43. That's one of my favorite sounds in the world. I love when people are turning their Bibles. Verse 43, very end of the chapter. Talking about the tabernacle, this tent 
this dwelling place of the Lord, God says this to his people, 29:43. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And I will, there's that word again, dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might, what? Dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So from beginning to end, 25 to 29, we see the point. God desires to dwell with his people, to be with them. I mean, think about it. In the book of Genesis, God walked with Adam and Eve. Now here he wants to dwell with them, to take up residence to be known as the Lord their God, the one who delivered them, who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Listen, God wants to dwell with you. God wants to dwell with you. Right here, right where you are in the room this morning. God's desire for his people thousands of years ago is the same desire that he has for his people in the room this morning. God wants to dwell with you. God wants you to know him as the God who saved you, the God who rescued you, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And so every detail in this passage is gonna point us to that truth. We're gonna see it foreshadowed and represented this morning in three separate ways. And each of these ways is gonna leave us with some practical implications for our lives. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in and we'll take these ways one at a time. Let's pray. Precious Father, we come before you in reverence and, and awe. Opening your book, Lord, it really is the best sound in the world when the people of God are opening their Bibles because we want to hear from the word of the Lord. Your word is truth. There's no falsehood in it, God, and it's good for us. It's profitable for us. It makes us complete. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish your purposes in this gathering this morning, that it would convict and encourage, rebuke and comfort, Lord, that it would not fail to accomplish the purposes for which you have set it forth. And so open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, the first thing that the tabernacle foreshadows for us is worship in a better place. Number one in your notes, worship in a better place. Let's keep reading. I'm gonna read a longer passage and I'm doing that intentionally. I want you to see these details. Beginning in verse 10 in chapter 25. So you can go back to 25. We'll have it up on the screen. They shall make an ark of akashi wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. It's a cube. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make the poles of kashi wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark or put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. And on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. 
of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So here's what's going on. Remember where we are in the history of Israel. They have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They promised to obey God and be God's people. And now in these verses, at the beginning of 25, God is giving them instructions on how to make something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be the place where God's presence would manifest itself, where it would be made known to the Israelites. And I trust we know this, church, but God is omnipresent, which means he's all places at all times, he's everywhere. But in the Ark, God's presence would be localized. In other words, that's specifically where he would meet with his people. Look at verse 22 again. There on the mercy seat is where I will meet with you. Now, the practical significance of the ark was found in what took place on the lid of the box. So look again at verse 17. 17 tells us that on the top of the ark, the people were to create a mercy seat made of pure gold covered by two cherubim or angels covering their faces. Now, this is where it gets pretty interesting. So hang with me here. The term mercy seat comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cover, to appease, or to make atonement for. So it was here on the mercy seat where this atonement, this covering would happen. Once a year, the high priest would enter in to the innermost parts of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, where the ark was kept. The priest would then sprinkle some blood of a sacrificed animal onto the mercy seat to atone for the wrath of God against sin. So this was a precious and sacred process and a precious and sacred place for the Israelites. They didn't mess around with the holy of holies. They recognized that in their sinful state, without a covering, they couldn't stand in the presence of God. Because of this, God had them make a veil, like a literal veil woven together to separate themselves from his presence. Chapter 26, verse 33 says that the veil will separate you from the most holy place. So this is what I want us to see, church. This holy place in the middle of the tabernacle was the focal point of worship for the Israelites. Once a year, the high priest carrying the sacrifice would enter into the holy place to meet with God and atone for the sin of the people. It was an act of atonement and an act of worship. Now, if you know your Bible, you might know where this is going. This sacrificial system where the priest would enter atone for the sin by the blood of an animal foreshadows for us the greater reality that we as Christians get to experience today. I mean, remember Piper's drawing. It's a, a representation of a greater reality. And the greater reality for everyone in this room who professes Jesus, the greater reality for us ends with the person and work of Jesus. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so instead of a system 
where the people would go into the tabernacle to dwell with God, God in his mercy decided to go and dwell with the people. The word dwelt here in John 1.14 is the exact same idea behind the word for tabernacle. So the living word, Jesus Christ, literally tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us, and in doing so, he accomplished everything that the sacrificial system was designed to accomplish. Think about it. Our, as our great high priest, Jesus, represents us to God. For Israel, Aaron, the high priest, would prepare the offering. Chapter 28, verse 29 says that he would do so with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel emblazoned on his breastpiece. He would prepare atonement for the names. Jesus does the same thing. He provides atonement for our names, for everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. Jesus is our advocate, and he's qualified to be our advocate on the basis of his perfect life. He didn't sin. And because he didn't sin, he was able to offer a perfect, spotless sacrifice. Jesus didn't bring in a sheep or a goat. He sacrificed himself by dying in our place on the cross, by shedding his blood as a cleansing atonement. And then guess what, church? When Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, the veil in the temple, the same veil that separated the Israelites from the presence of God, that veil tore. And it tore top to bottom, because God in his grace took the initiative to tear it. Christ became our mercy seat. We sang about it this morning. He sits on heaven's mercy seat. A more accurate rendering of that translation would be Christ is our mercy seat. And when Christ became our mercy seat, our atonement, he opened up the door for us to experience and know and enjoy and worship God whenever and wherever. Listen, I know that's a lot of theology, but it changes everything for us. Like because of Jesus, we now have total and unlimited access into the holy of holies, which is something that the Israelites could have only dreamed about. We are welcomed in to the presence of God, not covered by priestly garments, but covered by the shed blood of the Lamb of God. That means that if you're a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, you don't have to enter God's presence afraid. Like, you don't have to go to God in fear or trepidation. You don't have to worry if God will accept you. You're a follower of Jesus. You don't have to wonder if God's going to welcome you. You don't have to worry if you've been good enough. Why? Because when God sees you, Christian, he doesn't see your sin and your brokenness and your mess. He sees you covered by the perfect righteousness of his son. And because you're covered by the righteousness of Jesus, his son, God becomes our father. It's the most incredible reality of all time. Think about it this way. When my two-year-old son wakes me up in the middle of the night for a glass of water, he's not afraid of me. He's not worried. No, he comes with confidence, knowing that he is loved and accepted because he's my son. It's been said before that the only one who would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. is a child. And... The Bible tells us, as God's children, we now have that kind of access. Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Now, here's what this means for you today. As Christians, when we think about worship 
Because of this access we now have to God, bought by the blood of Jesus, we need to see, every single one of us, that our worship goes from being localized in a specific place to a lifestyle, from a physical place to literally all of life. Jesus said in John 4 that the Father is seeking those who will worship him, not in a place, but in spirit and in truth. Romans chapter 12 tells us that our role is now to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. So for the Christian, we aren't limited to worshiping in a specific place like the Israelites were. We worship God with all of our lives. We worship him with everything. That means for you right now, if you change diapers, when you change diapers, you do it as an act of worship. That when you're at your job, working with integrity at your job becomes an act of worship for you. How you study and prepare for your classes is an act of worship. There's not meant to be a separation between our lives and worship. How we leverage our lives is an act of worship. And this, again, is why the details of this passage are so helpful. Take a minute to flip through these chapters at some point this week. These details, these intricacies, you know what they prove? They prove, they show us that God cares deeply about how he is worshipped. And get this, God cares about how you worship. God cares about how you live, Christian. And I think that there might be room for some real, genuine introspection this morning. So look and examine your own life. Are you living as a follower of Jesus? Are you living as a living sacrifice? Or are you living a life of self-indulgence? We talked about this on Christmas Eve. We said that everyone magnifies something. I'll double down on that. Everyone worships something. We're either worshiping God with our lives or we're worshiping ourselves with our lives. So the question for us is to look inward and figure out who we're worshiping. If you don't know, ask the person who you drive home with today. Ask the person who knows you the best. If you were to look at my life and think, who do I worship? What's that answer for you? God is showing us in this passage that he has designed all of our lives, all of our worship to be an offering. And so we look inward and we examine how we worship God with our lives. We worship God with in a better place, and that place is everywhere. All right, we look inward, now we're gonna look outward. Number two, number two in your notes, a better priesthood. This passage shows us worship in a better place, and it foreshadows worship through a better priesthood. Look at chapter 28, verses one through three right after the instructions for the tabernacle had been finished, God says this, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So the idea of the priesthood is to consecrate, which means to set apart. We see this in verse three. Priests represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. They serve as mediators. And we know that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He is our one mediator between God and man. We praise God for it. But there's another element to this idea that I wanna unpack for a moment. Remember our overall theme today. God desires to dwell with you, desires to dwell with me. God wants to dwell with his people. 
and his presence dwelt with Israel in the Ark of the Covenant, and then through Jesus, through his incarnation, he dwelt with man during his ministry on earth, bought for us access to God. God was in the tabernacle, and then God tabernacled with us. And as awesome as this is, we're going to see that our incarnational God didn't stop at just dwelling with us, but as Christians, he was going to dwell in us. Ephesians chapter 3 lays this out. We'll have it on the screen. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell, same word, same idea, in your hearts through faith. So track with me here, church. By his spirit, Jesus has taken up residence. He is dwelling. He has tabernacled in our hearts through faith. You know what that means? It means that if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you are now the house of the Lord. That you are now the holy of holies. We sang about it this morning. We are, there's joy in the house of the Lord. That song is not about a place. When we become Christians and Christ dwells in us, when he tabernacles in us, we become the house of the Lord. And because Christ is now dwelling in our hearts through faith, he is now working out his priestly office through us. Let me explain what I mean. This gets so good. 1 Peter 2, 9, one of my favorites. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I love this verse for so many reasons, one of which is because as a priesthood, if God calls us his royal priesthood, it gives us our purpose, He's called us a priesthood so that we might proclaim his excellencies. And so track with me. Remember, the purpose of a priest was to be a representative. So here's how this hits home for us this morning. As a follower of Jesus, God has ordained you to represent him. God has ordained you, he's chosen you to be his priests, to be his representatives to the world around you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 calls us ambassadors for Christ. Think about the role of an ambassador for a second. Everything an ambassador does, he does it with the best interests of his home country. He doesn't do anything or make any decisions by himself. He does it as a representation of his higher calling. So here's the question for us. How are we representing Christ in our lives right now to the people who don't know him? God has put each of us, every single person in this room, in different circles of influence to be his representatives. He's dwelling in you, Christian, not just so that you would be saved and not just so that you would get to enjoy him and know him, but so that as a representative, you, by his grace, would bring other people into that saving knowledge. And so, again, we have to examine ourselves this morning. Are we living our lives in such a way that makes the gospel look attractive or makes the gospel look unnecessary? Are we living our lives in such a way that makes Christ look glorious and worth everything? Or are we living in such a way that makes our faith look like a Sunday morning thing. We come and worship on Sunday and the rest of our lives we look like everyone else. I was doing a research study this week, digging around for some different things, and I found a research group that did a study on the number one reason why people who aren't Christians don't come to church. 
there's a consensus, a number one reason why people who don't know and love Jesus, why they don't come to church. The church is full of what? Hypocrites. Gosh. In some extent, I get it, right? Like when we sin, we go against what we say we believe. So there is a reality to that. We are all in some way hypocrites. But this also should grieve us because while none of us honor God perfectly with our lives, we don't want to be marked by hypocrisy. We want to be marked as representatives. Our lives should be marked by the one who we represent. And so think about this. We've got different phases of life here in this room. If you're in high school or middle school right now, let me talk to you for just a second. You're in middle school or in high school. It is really hard to follow Jesus as a teenager. Whether you're in private school, homeschool, public school, it's hard to follow Jesus as a teenager. But God has called you, high schooler, to be his representatives in your classroom. He's called you to be his representatives on your sports team, in your job, in your minimum wage job. God has put you in that job to represent him. As a college student, we got William & Mary back in session. I'm so glad to have you all. God has put you on your campus to be a representative of Christ, to be the aroma of Christ. And so, for lack of a better word, what do you smell like? But do you smell like Christ to a lost and dying world around you? You should. God's called you to. In your classrooms, at your jobs, on your teams, in your halls, you are to be the aroma of Christ to a watching world around you. If you're in the workplace right now, there should be a marked difference in how you live your life and how everyone else lives their lives around you. It should be evident that you know and love Jesus and that you sacrifice your time, talent, and treasure in ways that people who don't know Jesus think is crazy. Do people know you as a Christian in your workplace? God has ordained you as a representative in your job to be his ambassador. And we've got retirees in the room this morning. Praise God. Are you leveraging your retirement, your extra time as an ambassador for Christ? Like look outward and ask the hard questions this morning. Listen, because Christ dwells in you and because you get to be around lost people, you know what that means? Is that for someone who doesn't know Jesus, when they know you, you are the closest thing to Jesus they know. Like that should hit you this morning. And so what are you communicating about Jesus by how you live and how you treat lost people. And again, I think there's a two-part focus. We look inward at our worship and we look outward at how we are called to represent God. There is no more eternally significant calling on our lives than to be representatives for the God of the universe. Amen? Israel understood this. This is a big deal to them. Chapter 28, starting at verse 33. Moses is writing about the robes that the priests would wear as he prepared to enter the Holy of Holies. On its hem, the hem of the robe, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. You see this? Like Aaron realized that as a priest, there was a chance that when he entered into the Holy of Holies, he would die. There was a risk to that job. 
So much so that they put bells in his robe so that the people outside of the Holy of Holies would know if the bells stop ringing, Aaron has been struck down by the Lord. Jewish tradition goes farther. Jewish tradition tells us that they would tie a rope around the foot or ankle of the high priest. And so if God did strike him down, they could just drag him out. Like this was a weighty thing. It is the most glorious calling on our lives to represent God as a kingdom of priests. That's the second thing that this passage teaches us, shows us, points us to a better priesthood. All right, number three, I'm gonna wrap up. A better promise. Our passage today foreshadows the fulfillment of a better promise. Again, remember Piper's drawing, a representation of a greater reality. That's what we've been seeing so far in our time in the word. God desires to dwell with his people so he first does it in a tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and then he dwells physically with them through Jesus, through the incarnation of Christ. And then in our age today, he dwells spiritually with us, tabernacling in our hearts through faith. So for us, we look inward at our worship and outward at our representation. We want to be sure that we're worshiping God well and representing God faithfully. We look inward and then outward. I want to close our time this morning by looking forward, because here's what can happen during a sermon like this one we can come to realize that we aren't worshiping God perfectly with our lives. And if we think about it, we can come to realize that we aren't representing God faithfully with our lives. And we know that God desires to dwell with us, but if we're honest, it can be really easy on the basis of our performance to doubt that sometimes. And so even subconsciously, we begin to equate the strength of God's desire to dwell with us with the worthiness of ourselves as a dwelling place. And that's a scary place to be, church, because guess what? You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. We're not worthy of being the dwelling place of God. So here's what that means. God's desire to dwell with us in imperfect people has to be based on God's character and not ours. It has to be based on God's promise, not our performance. And so here's the good news. It is. Let me show you what I mean. Think back to the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle, the room that contained the covenant, God's temporary dwelling place with man, centuries after Exodus 26, Israel would go on to build a temple, which was the same idea as the tabernacle. It was just meant to be a permanent structure, not a portable tent. Same layout, same function, same holy place. 1 Kings 20 gives us the dimension of the Holy of Holies. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. The inner sanctuary, talking about the Holy of Holies, was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. 20 by 20 by 20. If you know geometry, you know what shape that is. Someone shout it out. It's a cube. 20 by 20 by 20, it's a cube. The only cube we see in the Old Testament was the Ark and the Holy of Holies. God's temporary dwelling place with his people. Now, fast forward with me to the last book in the Bible. This is where we'll look forward. In Revelation 21, we see God's desire to dwell with his people fulfilled. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Again, think tabernacle. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So this is incredible, right? It's the last step of the plan. God will dwell with his people temporarily in the tabernacle, physically with Jesus, spiritually in our hearts. Then we can look forward to a day when one day he'll dwell with us forever. We'll have a permanent dwelling place in the kingdom of God. But get this, I want us to see the measurements 
of this heavenly dwelling place. Verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. He's talking about the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. You see this? There's no accidents in the Bible. It's a cube, a permanent heavenly fulfillment of a temporary earthly reality. I mean, church, this is the most thrilling geometry lesson of all time. Because here's what it shows us. God has planned his perfect dwelling place with his people since before the beginning of time. It's not random or reactionary. God's not waiting to see if we'll worship him well enough or we'll represent him faithfully enough. No, God's plan to dwell with his people will be accomplished on the basis of his work and not ours. And church, his work was perfect. His work was perfect. Where Jesus, where we were faithless, Jesus was faithful. When we were disobedient, Jesus was obedient. When we were selfish, Jesus was selfless. And when we doubted, Jesus never wavered. And so the next time that you stumble, the next time that you sin, the next time that you feel like the weight of the world is too much for you to bear, then my encouragement to you as your pastor is with everything you have, cast yourself on the mercy of your great high priest because he has secured God's dwelling place with you forever and he has made you promises that are better than Israel had. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you, Christian. He has promised to cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, Christian. And he has promised that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's a better reality for us. And so here's how we're going to close our time. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to go out singing joyfully this morning. Joy in the house of the Lord. But before we do that, I want to read an extended passage of Scripture that I think is going to serve to really summarize this morning. The book of Hebrews is the commentary for our sermon series over the next couple months. This book explains the connection between things like the tabernacle and the better reality that we have in Christ. And so I want to close just by reading, by reading God's word, Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to read it over us. And I know we've covered a ton of Bible this morning. It's been heavy theologically this morning. I understand that. But I'm asking for like a minute more of attention because this reality in Hebrews 9 is so good, Christian. And so here's what I want to do. Let's stand. We're going to stand together. I'm going to read God's word over us. I'm going to pray. And we're going to go out joyfully this morning. This is the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And these preparations having thus been made, the priests go in regularly to the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes 
And but he once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is what Jesus did for you, Coastal. He secured for you an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so, Father, we praise you this morning for this reality. God, I know this is an intellectual word, Lord, that there's a ton here. It's tough, God, to look at the tabernacle and to look at these details and to see your prescriptions for worship and think, how does this relate to my life? But God, I praise you that this word is in the Bible because it's good for us. God, it shows us a greater reality found in the person and work of Jesus. That because of Jesus and his work on the cross, we have unlimited access to you. And so Father, I think there's an application point in that for some people in this room this morning. There are people that have not yet put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And because of that, they're still looking at the outside of the holy and holies and they're not welcomed in. And so God, I pray this morning that they would repent of their sin. They believe in the message of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sin and that he bodily rose from the grave. I pray they would repent of their sin, believe in that message and they would receive Christ and be welcomed into the presence of God, that they'd be able to wake up the king at 3 a.m. for the water because they now know him as father. I pray, God, that that would be the story for many people in this room. I pray for the Christian in this room who feels like they're backsliding, who feels like God is distant, feels like God doesn't care about what's going on in their lives. I pray for the Christian that feels like God has forsaken them. Lord, I know that you have not forsaken them and that because of Jesus, they have unlimited access to you, that you haven't gone anywhere, that you're right beside them, God. And so I pray that this morning, God, they would turn to you and they would run to you, run to the arms of the Father to find refuge and help. I thank you, Lord God, that we are your representatives. And I pray, God, that you would make us fit representatives for the person of Jesus. That in our workplaces, as we go from here, and in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our sports teams, that we would live and breathe this week as representatives of the King. That we would feel the high calling that we've been called to. That we would act and live in, in a way that would accord with that calling. Help us to be worthy, God. And then, Father, I praise you for your perfect plan, how from the beginning of time you have desired to dwell with your people. You foreshadowed it in a box. 
foreshadowed it in a cube, Lord, and prepared a city where we'll one day get to be with you. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Help our singing right now to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.